0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today I'm joined by Michael Stevens. Michael is Associate Fellow at Rusi. He's written extensively on a range of different issues pertaining to the Middle East with a particular focus on the Gulf. He's someone I've known for a long time and we've been trying to make this happen for, for a while. So I'm really pleased that, that we've been able to make it happen right now. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Simon. Happy to be here.
1: And yes, we've been trying to make this work for a while, but uh, we're here and I'm really, really happy to be chatting to you about the project and and stuff uh, that I'm doing and and looking at the
0: Middle East. Well, thank you for your enthusiasm and your your ongoing support. Um, Mike, let's start at the beginning. Mm. What prompted your interest in the Middle East?
1: Oh, wow. That's... I mean, this is a long story. Uh, So I... um, I am the son of an oil and gas man, right? and he was uh, in Abu Dhabi with my mum in the late 70s and early 80s, and uh, my sister and I um, were brought up there uh, when we were young, and when my brother was born, we moved back to the UK, that was in the mid-80s, and my dad constantly travelled back and forth from the region, was working a lot in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and constantly would be talking about issues in the Middle East at that time. And there were the tanker wars and the Iran-Iraq wars. So it was uh, something that was always sort of close to close to my heart, I suppose. Um, and then in the mid-'90s, uh, we did move back to the Gulf. We moved to Qatar for three years, and there was a coup uh, where the uh, Qatari, the, uh, the father emir, uh, took power from his father. And so that obviously piqued my interest Sure. Uh, And uh, and so that was, I think, sort of um, hardwired into me. I've always felt comfortable in the golf. I've always felt comfortable in golf culture around uh, golf Arabs in particular. It's been something that you know, I've I've enjoyed growing up in in that environment, and I think that probably helped a lot.
0: Sure. Um, What are your early memories of that time then?
1: Memories of that time, oh gosh, it was a lot more conservative than it is today.
0: Sure, yeah. Uh,
1: And uh, I I subsequently, when I was uh, with Rusi, moved to Qatar in 2011. And I remember getting off the plane in 2011 and just thinking, my God, this is so different from what I remember in the mid-90s. You know, you had separate entrances for families in restaurants. You had to be so careful about how you behaved in public and you know I I, I I arrived off the plane in Qatar in 2011 and I saw you know young locals holding hands in public I mean it was it was incredible you know and I think that was probably what triggered my memories actually more was was going back and living there um, in the early 2010s. And then juxtaposing it with my experience as a child, uh, and obviously as a child, it's a bit different. You know, you you tend to live more of an expat lifestyle. You 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 hang out in the in the sports clubs on the Corniche, and you know you um, you have a very sort of pampered life, and, and you know sure, that, yeah. that was how it was in the eighties, um, and to some extent is for people now today. Um, but what I do remember is is very much that in those days it was a lot smaller. The Gulf states didn't have all these skyscrapers about. It was much more of a community. You would all go out to the soup to get your supplies in the middle of the day. and um, it, it, um, it was almost yeah, it was almost better, actually. I, in some ways, I prefer the Gulf in, in years gone by to what it is now, where it feels a little bit like the local culture has been washed out. There are so many skyscrapers and fancy hotels and five-star this and five-star that. Huh, yeah. It feels a little bit generic. There's, there's less of uh, what I think made it special.
0: Sure, yeah, I can certainly uh, certainly understand that point of view. So, you you had that that period in the nineties, and then you you did yeah. your education. I know that was that was back in the UK. But then, mm. what what made you decide to go down the the politics route rather than following uh, in the footsteps of your father and going into to oil and gas?
1: I don't know. I think. Um... If I recall correctly, uh, when I was in about my third year of university, I was doing a classics degree, which was just not related to the Middle East at all. But I, I remembered um, every morning I would switch on the news and I would be looking at the news. And of course, you know, as some of us remember from back in the day as students, uh, a lot of people are nursing hangovers in student dorms and all the rest of it. And people would be sort of doing that. And I'd be sitting there with the news glued to whatever was happening, and um, you know, and, and there was a lot happening back then, you know, 9-11, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, you know, and I was following these things day in, day out. And, and uh, I think I realized at that point that this was something I really, really cared about. And, um, and I was just very lucky that I had, uh, during my master's degree in international relations, it was an Israeli professor called Aaron Bregman, who works at King's even today, uh, who was just so passionate about his topic and, and that really rubbed off on me and and, and made me pursue the, the career that I did. And what really I think cemented it for me was uh, I went to Israel to write my thesis in uh, 2006. And I was living in the north of Israel at the time doing research into my thesis and uh, the Lebanon war started.
0: Right. Okay. And
1: uh, I lived up in the north of Israel during the Lebanon war. Uh, I was on the border with Lebanon when the first shots were fired. And I remember Hearing the Israeli artillery firing, it was about two miles to my left, and I saw these puffs of smoke in Lebanon. I thought, "Oh, this isn't good." And of course, within about three days, all hell had broken <laughs> loose. And, yeah. Um, and then I thought to myself, "Well, this this seems uh, this seems like something I might want to do." And and so I uh, I managed to get a job in in Washington D.C. Uh, for a few months, and then uh, I got a scholarship to study at Hebrew University, and and uh, I was there for two and a half years uh, in Jerusalem. And living um, in an area that was an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, but back right onto a Palestinian neighborhood. And I think uh, that really cemented in my mind that I, I wanted to do, you know, the politics of the Middle East. And, and I was really interested in people yeah. and the way people live their lives and how stressful situations and conflict affected them. I was interested in language. I was interested in culture and uh, not so much interested in making money. So I guess that's why I went um, the route I did and not my dad's route. <laughs>
0: that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're not going to get much money in this game, unfortunately. No. <laughs> um, Mike, let's go back to 2006. That that dissertation of yours, your sorry, your master's thesis, what was that yeah. on?
1: It was uh, looking at the religious Zionist movement in Israel. And at that time, it had gone through some turmoil
0: because... Yeah.
1: There was, if you remember, Ariel Sharon left the Likud and formed Kadima. And Kadima was effectively a centrist party. And this giant of a man, quite literally and metaphorically, Ariel Sharon, had uh, formulated a plan called, I think in in English it's called the Convergence Plan. In Hebrew it was Hidnat Kut. And it was effectively pulling out unilaterally from Gaza and from a couple of settlements in the northern West Bank. Uh, without the permission of parliament, and, and this was forced through by the personality of Ariel Sharon. And this caused an enormous yeah. rupture within the religious Zionist community and the what you might call the settler community. And I thought this was, was a really interesting thing to study because these were the most ardent ultra-nationalists in Israel yep. who backed the state because it was a kind of it was part of a messianic process to bring God's will on earth and bring back the redemption, and yet this entity, this state that they basically revered, had turned against them. And what I was trying to analyze was whether this movement would turn against the state or whether because it was so imbued with this sort of messianic belief that the state was the the bringer of redemption, whether it would stay linked to the state. And and it was a very, very tense time. And I don't think that the settler movement at that time had fully come to a conclusion about where it was going to go. Certainly the more established um, settlers in the in the Yesha Council, which is the council which governs the settlements in, mm. in, in um, the occupied territories, decided to throw their lot in with the state. But there were many that didn't. Yep. And there were many, I think, who would much rather have been just living in the West Bank and not Israeli, because for them, being Jewish and being in the West Bank was more important than being Israeli. So you had this massive tension. Uh, Ultimately, uh, I I got some really good research done during that time. It was a bit difficult because of the war and the conflict, but um, but got some good research done and, and I came to the conclusion... Uh, that I thought the vast majority of the settlers would, would support the state because without it, there was no framework for them to survive, either ideologically or financially or anything else. Fascinating. So it was a very interesting time.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could spend the rest of this podcast talking about that, and that's that's such a fascinating and important time in, in Israeli Jewish political history, let alone for the impact on, on Palestinians. Yeah. But yeah. there's there's much more to cover. I one One final question about this time. Did you stay in, in northern Israel for the duration of the 34-day th- war, or were you out before the end of it?
1: Well, it was about 10 days. Uh, so from what I... I mean, this is ancient history now, but I remember <laughs> watching uh, the World Cup final. Oh, wow. Um, it was France against Italy, wasn't it? It was. It the was. one where Z- Zidane headbutted Matarazzi. Yep. And uh, we were watching this the World Cup final, and uh, this enormous bang. Uh, happened, and it must have been about, I don't know, two miles away. Um, and it knocked out a lot of the power grid in the area. And, you know, we wanted to stay as long as we could in this kibbutz. And uh, the next day, you know, the the owner of the kibbutz said, look, we you know, you, uh, we think you'd better leave. You know, the, the missiles are getting closer and closer. Yeah. This isn't a place for you to Uh, And uh, we moved to Jerusalem, and and it was during my time in Jerusalem that I decided that I wanted to spend more time in Jerusalem. So uh, I think I probably spent, I would have thought, two weeks of that war in the north, maybe 10 days of that war in the north. I mean, it was pretty rough, but we got away to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was pretty safe in
0: comparison. Yeah, It's interesting, Your, your memories of that 2006 World Cup final are dramatically at odds with mine. My mind was spent at my cousin's wedding, where uh, a Geordie cousin of mine was marrying into a Japanese family, which was very surreal, but uh, a wonderful experience nonetheless. I bet.
1: Wow. Well, I'm glad that we both got interesting memories back
0: in 2006. <laughs> uh, we do, although I'm not sure any of them can live up to uh, Zinedine Zidane's. But I digress. No. Um, yes, Mike, I'd love one day to talk to you about your time in Jerusalem because Mm. that is such an incredible city, such a fascinating, uh, stimulating, rich, depressing, frustrating city um, full of of all types of political life. But I want to get onto the stuff that you've been doing more of recently, which is the the work you've done with Roussi, particularly on the Gulf. Mm. So can you tell us about joining Roussi and what you were initially tasked with then?
1: Yeah sure so I I um came back from Israel after you know three three years out there and uh, my my Hebrew was pretty much fluent at that time and my Arabic wasn't too bad um and I had thought that you know with these skills I'd be able to walk into a job uh, as an intern or something like that of course uh we forget that this was just post the financial crash sure. yeah uh things were not quite as as positive as they subsequently became. Um, and uh, that was just not true. i I spent a year applying to jobs, didn't find anything. Eventually, there was something that came up in nuclear security at Rusi. And because I worked on the Iran issue quite a lot, uh, I knew a fair amount about nuclear security. And so I started actually my career at Rusi in the uh, in the nuclear security program, Interesting. uh working on disarmament issues. Um, and in three months I had, uh, an, uh, I think I attended a round table with some very famous Israeli academics, Avi Schleim and people like that. Uh-huh. And, uh, because I obviously knew the topic quite well, uh, I was, you know, really, really getting into the topic and, and contributing to the debate and. Uh my director of studies, uh, Jonathan, came to me and said, oh, what, what department do you work in? I said, I work in nuclear security. He said, why, why have I never heard of you? I want you to come and work for me. So I did. And I, I came and worked for him. And then uh, he found out subsequently that um, I'd lived in Qatar and that we had an office in Qatar and that they wanted to send me to Qatar. Uh, and this was just very fortuitous. I was sent to Qatar a month after the Arab Spring began.
0: Wow. OK. Right?
1: So... What better place to be? Five minutes away from Al Jazeera. And I used to watch all of these people that I looked up to. Shadi Hamid, Jane Kenneman, you know, all these big people that I looked up to in the field on Al Jazeera TV and there was me five minutes drive away. Uh-huh. I got my first phone call once they realized there were some analysts in Doha and then I was on Al Jazeera West all the time. And that gave me a lot of media training, a lot of exposure to the media. I worked on both the English and the Arabic channels. And by the way, the Arabic channel as the Syrian civil war broke out was incredible place to be. The access that it. they had into the country. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of Syrians in the channel working there. And yes, they had a, a biased view, but I learned a lot. Oh, my goodness. You know, as a 27 year old or whatever I was, uh, being every day in that channel, in that environment and also working in, you know, around Arabs, speaking Arabic all the time. That really helped me. Um, And then building my portfolio um, on uh, the English channel. And then obviously... Doha being Doha, they were interfering in everybody's business, right? And <laughs> you know, the Qataris subsequently paid the price for that. But if they're interfering in everyone's business, I mean, you you cannot fail. But, I mean, Doha's tiny. You know, you go to dinner, you sit there, and next to you is Abu Mazen. You know, yeah. having dinner with his friends. You know, I, I mean, this stuff would happen all the time. And so, I decided. You know, I took advantage of the fact that the, in the Gulf, everything's negotiable. And you know, I. I Claimed I was a journalist here and there and everywhere, and I got into all these conferences, and I just began to build a portfolio of work that was unique because people wanted to know what Qatar was doing, particularly from people that lived in Qatar. And there was basically myself, David Roberts, and Shadi Hamid. Uh, There was only three of us, and so right place, right time.
0: Yeah, for sure. So it's really interesting hearing about the the way in which Doha was working at that point. I think it's it's rather different today given the the growth and given the the transformation that you were alluding to earlier on but yeah what what sort of memories do you have of being in Doha at a time when the region was was going through such turmoil and and Qatar was was playing an interesting role let's say politically interesting role in a lot of these developments what what memories do you have there?
1: Oh, it was an exciting place to be um, if you knew where to look, right? right? If you knew the personalities, if you knew who was around. uh, And, I mean, you could just go to any hotel and bump into somebody that had significance regionally. But, you know, of course, if, if, you know, uh, you were just kind of working in... I don't know, hospitality or PR. And there were a lot of PR agents at the time coming into Qatar. You might not have known who these people were and they might have sauntered past you and you wouldn't care. You know, I I stepped into a lift once and I was in a lift with Musa Kusa. If you remember him, he was the Libyan intelligence chief. We went up 24 floors in a lift together, just him and I. And I mean, he must have looked at me like I was some... I don't know, nutty guy because he didn't take his eyes off me for a second the whole way up the lift. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you're sitting there around these people. And if you know what those opportunities are, then you can you can really make the most of it. The Taliban office was open in Doha. There was so much to do. And 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 if it was, you know, it might not appear that because it's 50 degrees out and nobody's walking around and it looks like a sleepy city. But, uh, you know, there were journalists coming in all the time, big news organizations, um, always another academic coming in, wanting to do research, you know, um, and at that time, of course, there was no blockade. So I could travel from Qatar to Bahrain, for example, and go and, and observe the protests in Bahrain. It's a 25 minute flight away. So I was constantly going over to Bahrain and I met, you know, contacts in the, in the government and in the Al-Wafak party. So I actually wrote a lot about the Bahrain uprisings because it was easy to go, yeah. um, And then, um, I was able to get into Saudi Arabia, which was very, very difficult at that time. Uh, don't, you know, Saudi Arabia back then was not what it is now. Uh, and it was very difficult, but I managed to get a visa and I managed to do some really interesting work in Saudi Arabia. And back then it was like, you know, it was almost as difficult to get into as as North Korea, you know, uh, but living in Doha, you're only 45 minute flight away from Riyadh. So I was able to get to all these places. Uh, and that's what allowed me to build portfolio. And then, um, I'll very quickly zoom forward. Uh, I ended up um, uh, dating somebody that worked on the Kurdistan region. Uh, so I ended up going to Kurdistan. And uh, in 2013, again, it's only about an hour, 45-minute flight away from Doha. Very easy to get to. Yeah. Um, I ended up going to the Kurdistan region a lot, learning a bit of Kurdish, meeting Kurds, learning Kurdish culture. And then, again, right place, right time. Everybody's like, why are you focusing on the Kurds? Well, by 2014, that wasn't such a stupid idea, was it, you know, because exactly, they were yeah. the front line of the Islamic State uh, offensives and they became the center of, of regional politics. So, again, you know, two really right place, right times, 2011 in, in Doha and then 2013-14
0: in, in Kurdistan. Fantastic. That's really fascinating. Again, I could I could really sit and talk to you about, about all of this for, for much longer than, than we have right now. One final question I will ask about this this part of your your time in predominantly in Doha I guess yeah. what was what was the the story that you wrote or the piece that you wrote that has stayed with you the most the most interesting or important piece that you've you've done during this this period of what four or five years
1: oh that that for me is a very easy one um, I I still to this day uh, have a very, very close Qatari friend who is uh, from the Shia community in Qatar. And uh, one day he said to me, would you like to come to our Ashura, you know, uh, commemorations, I Uh wouldn't call them celebrations. And I went into this uh, masjid or matam as they call them. And I went to the Ashura uh, ceremonies and, and commemorations and I wrote about what I saw. And I don't know if I'm the only Westerner to have ever done that, Uh, but I'm pretty sure I'm I'm one of a handful that has been into uh, a Shia mosque in Qatar during Ashura and uh, seen the commemorations. And and, I mean, I took part in it, you know, it was was quite interesting taking Mm -hmm. part. Uh, And I did that two years in a row and and I wrote a very extensive piece about what that was like and how different... Shia communities in the country because they're obviously Iranian expats. There were Lebanese expats. There were the Qataris themselves, the yeah. Bahrainis, uh, and then some Afghans and Pakistanis. And I wrote about the differences between the way that they <laughs> commemorated Ashura in, in this mosque and uh, in this matan. Amazing. And that to me, it's probably not the most widely read piece. The most widely read piece I, I've I've written was one about the Islamic State for the BBC, which got, I think it was nearly two million reads. But Wow. Um, but th- this one probably, it probably didn't even get, 0.1% of that in terms of reads, but it is definitely the one piece where I thought, do you know what, I'm really doing good research here. This is this is unique, no one else is doing this, and I'm really proud of what I've done.
0: And where can people find that piece?
1: That's on Open Democracy. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. So actually, one of the best things that happened to me back then uh, was that Open Democracy were giving a platform to young writers from the region to write about the region. And because. I was based in Doha. I was considered as being from the region.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Uh, and, and I was able to write a weekly column. And that really, really gave me the
0: confidence to do things that I probably wouldn't have done before. Yeah, so many, many thanks
1: to Open Democracy, um, you know, for giving me that platform back then.
0: Amazing. Well, what I'll do is I'll get the link from you, Mike, and then I'll um, I'll add it in uh, alongside this podcast so people can read it. Cause it sounds wonderful. I, I must yep. confess I've not read that, but I was amongst the two million to read your, your, um, Islamic State piece with the BBC. <laughs> well,
1: BBC has a,
0: a much better way of getting these things out. I think so. Strange that. Yeah. Um Moving back to the UK then you mm. came back. When was that? Uh, 2014, 2014.
1: 2014. Yeah. Yeah. And then but I spent a lot of that time going back and forward from Iraq. Uh, yeah. so I spent in 2014, I probably spent a total of maybe three months in Iraq. Right. Um, And I spent uh, a few days in Syria as well during that time. But yes, I was mostly based in in the UK at that point, yeah.
0: And that was working on on the fight against Daesh? It was, yeah. I mean, at that
1: time, obviously, again, because I had um, sort of built a a slightly wider portfolio of work by that point, um, you know, going out and and, uh, knowing the Kurds and and things, uh, and slowly beginning to build up, you know, quite detailed knowledge on Kurdistan. And and funny enough, actually, it's one of those topics that I, I have found that has, has, has suited me so well over the years because I can constantly come back to Kurdish issues and, and work on them. And there are all sorts of interesting pathways that that's taken me in my career. Um, but, you know, and I, I genuinely enjoy it. You know, I was I was sitting with a couple of uh, Kurdish friends and, and Vladimir Van Wilgenberg, who is a very famous uh, Dutch journalist who works on Kurdish issues, just before the, the COVID-19 lockdown and we were just talking about Kurdish culture and songs and 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 these things and and I just you know I hadn't done that for a couple of years and I remembered how much I enjoyed working on Kurdistan and Kurdish issues, um, and they have real politics there. Hey? Oh, they do. You know the difference between working in the Gulf where there is no politics, right? There's no civil yeah. society at all. It's 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 a completely autocratic set of states, um, with the exception of Bahrain and Kuwait where there's a little bit, but not much. Uh, and then you go to Kurdistan, where everything is political, everything is about political parties it 's about you know you know all sorts of who 's up and who 's down and how many seats in the parliament this guy 's got and that guy and how big his following is and yeah yes okay it's it's It can be a bit autocratic as well, but it was so it was like a breath of fresh air, you know oh, it yeah. really was working on these on these very very political, civically engaged populations as opposed to the Gulf, where it was very kind of top down and static. Uh, that was a good change in my career and I was I was very pleased I did that. Um, With such wonderful you know, food as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lie, I did put a bit of weight in 2014. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, I, I think living in, in, in England or back in London was also a very good idea because it gave me a place to escape to. And God, you know, really saw some tough things in Iraq, you know. Uh, That was not easy at times, you know, going into Syria and seeing some things there and and seeing the Yazidi population just after ISIS had, well, tried to exterminate them and seeing the hardships that they were going through. That was was tough. That changed me a lot. And being able to get out of the region and go back to the UK was very important to me in terms of... um, creating a kind of space where i could go and process the things i'd seen and, and work on them in kind of relative calm and uh and then i could go back again once i felt like i'd uh, sure. i was i was ready again uh I'm, I'm not a journalist you know i can't live there every day day in day out like some of those journalists do and then yeah i mean you know all power to them because <laughs> I, I i don't have the stomach that that some of those guys
0: had so it's it's a difficult question this Mike but I'm curious given the the things that you've done and i've asked I've asked others um, Chris Phillips and the like people who've who spent their careers following conflict essentially working on conflict how do you yeah. process the the mental trauma of doing something like that
1: that's a really interesting question uh, to begin with I didn't very well right. um, so I remember the first time I saw a video from Syria. It was about, yeah, and and Syria, and you remember this, Simon, was the first conflict where people were live tweeting and YouTubing clips from the conflict zone literally minutes after they were happening. And, and, you know, guys like you and I had never dealt with stuff like this before.
0: Yeah,
1: You were able suddenly to see things in war that people had never seen before. So I started to see things, you know, clips from the front line of people being buried alive, of kids with their jaws blown off, you know, screaming in agony. And, you know, it it was tough. Um, And I was shocked when I first saw those things in 2011. Uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. After years of dealing with that, I'm not shocked anymore. and, and, And especially after ISIS, where... I was once uh, I had the misfortune to have to write an analysis on ISIS torture videos, oh, uh, and having to watch people being set on fire and all these things, and uh, that I'm afraid to say it toughens you up and probably not in a good way. No, but you know you you have to you have to you have to deal with this stuff if you want to deal with the Middle East. You have to take the rough with the smooth, and you know you and I both know that there are some wonderful things about Middle Eastern culture: the hospitality, the food, the kindness, the openness welcoming nature but there's also some pretty cruel stuff that happens there particularly in iraq and syria yeah. and um i learned over time to cope and these days you know what's interesting is is it's only when you have to deal with something a few years later that you dealt with previously that you realize how much you've changed and and i i knew in myself that i would have become a lot tougher uh and a lot less um um a lot less emotionally affected by these things. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is, is I'm not sure. Uh, I think it's like, look, you know, if a doctor screams at the sight of blood or a broken bone, then they're probably not a very good doctor. Yeah. So uh, that's probably how I, I I would interpret that particular issue. Uh, wasn't easy, but I think we've all been through it, you know, and, and we've all had to, to deal with the the bad stuff in, in war. Um and come out the other side of it. Luckily, I have. Other people have struggled and yep. other people haven't struggled at all. I think we're all on a
0: sliding scale. Exactly, yeah. It's it's sort of personal experience and, and how one deals with it differs depending on, on context, right? Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Um, and funnily enough, uh, there are times when it's, you know, you'll see violence happening in front of you. And because you're so kind of filled with adrenaline, you don't really process it. Yeah. Um, and actually what you do remember are things like what someone said or an emotion or a look on someone's face rather than what you were feeling at the time. Exactly. Um, and I think that's those are the things that stay with me. Uh, and the other things that stay with me, you know, going through refugee camps uh, filled with Syrians.
0: I was just about to say the refugee camps are the yeah, thing that stay with yeah.
1: me. Uh, you know, but the thing that, that stays with me the most, apart from, you know, the, the sort of the, the bad living conditions, is how hospitable they were. Yeah. And uh, you'd be walking there, you know, Mr. Westerner, um, you can go back to your nice home in in Putney, which is where I live. You know, it's sort of upper middle class London. Um, And yet this guy invites you to his tent, gives you tea and then puts out a spread on a table that is fit for a king. And you just, you know, that that is the sort of thing that I was amazed by was the pride and the dignity that these people held themselves with you know, and their hospitality, their, their, their friendliness, their willingness to take you in and, you know, just be, just be so wonderful and, uh, living, and they're living through such hardships, you mm. know, and, and, you know, when we look at where we are now with the COVID-19 issue and we're sitting at home in fairly nice situations and a lot of people are getting stressed out and complaining, I'm like, well, human beings, if they really need to cope, you know, they can put up with a lot worse than, than what we're putting up with. So, um, and, and they can still keep a good cheer and charm, and friendliness, and uh, those are the things that stay with me the best. Actually, it's probably the more positive aspects stay with me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, a good way of looking at it, actually. And it, this podcast isn't about me, but I've got a number of similar experiences of, of hospitality and generosity from people who, who really had no need to, to give those, those um, well, gifts, their time, their, yeah. their generosity, yeah. their spirit. <coughs> exactly, exactly. It means a lot, you know. It does. It, it does. really
1: does. Um, and there are times I think where, you know, we in the West could learn a little bit of, of that hospitality and generosity sometimes. And maybe, you know what, given some of the changes we're seeing now, where people are helping each other out, maybe yeah. maybe we will see some of that. I hope so.
0: We can certainly hope. Mike, we've yeah. taken up a lot of your time, but I have one final question, if I may. Sure. My sure. final question is, I've heard on the grapevine that you are in the process of writing a book. I am indeed, yes. Can you yes. tell us with a Christopher little Phillips. Oh, really fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, increasingly, obviously, because I spend less time in the region, uh, I tend to write less about the on-the-ground stuff from the region. But what yeah. I can write about is uh, the UK and UK uh, strategic interests. Uh, obviously, we've had that little thing happen called Brexit. Um, I've heard rumours of that, that yeah. Rumours rumours that it has occurred. Um, <laughs> and that is going to mean a huge amount for our foreign policy and our security uh, sure. in the years ahead once the coronavirus issue has gone past Um And I'm looking specifically with Chris at our interests in the Middle East um, and what they look like in the post-Brexit era. And trying to ask difficult questions, questions that sometimes policy wants to ask but can't. Uh-huh. Uh, I have worked in the Foreign Office, so I do know a little bit about how the sausages are made. <laughs> um,
0: Keep that to yourself. And,
1: yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, Chris, with a very strong academic background and me with a more policy relevant background, we came together. Uh, we were in a on a bus on the way up Mount Lebanon uh, a couple of years ago, and we came up with this idea, and we're going to put that out this year and hopefully it'll be out in the latter part of 2020. Amazing. And I'm really, really hoping that, you know, we put forward some provocative ideas that get people thinking about what our true interests in the region are, how we intersect uh, problems of economics uh, versus human rights, uh, how we manage our relationship with the United States, how we manage our relationship with the EU uh, and looking at, you know, what these relations in the Middle East mean to us. You know, I grew up in the Gulf. I have uh, a natural affinity for thinking that the UK uh, should have interest in the gulf, but not everyone does. So it's incumbent upon people like me to explain why I think that is the case. And people are free to disagree if they wish. Um, But all I want to do is just put some yardsticks out there for people to think about and to critique. And for policymakers from now until probably 2030, I want this book to have a a 10-year shelf life. Uh, to really, really engage with and and provide uh, thought-provoking points when they're coming up with their policy ideas, and just for the general reader as a whole to try and understand better where we are with relation to this place that we call the Middle East.
0: It sounds fabulous. I look forward to reading it. Do you have a title and who's publishing it?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's IB
0: Taurus. uh, Amazing.
1: And it's called, I think... Uh, What next for Britain in the Middle East? Uh, Economic, political, and something else after Brexit. Sorry, I can't remember. (laughs) That's really long, Um, but it's yes, it's coming out on IB Tours and hoping October twenty twenty.
0: Amazing! I look forward to it, and I hope I can get you and Chris together on the show to uh, to talk a little bit about it. Because that sounds like a wonderful project.
1: We'd love it. I know it. Chris and I can can talk for Britain, so we'd be so happy to come back and talk to you about the
0: book. (laughs) Amazing. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I hope everyone else has too. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Simon. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time.